Hello, my name is Dr. James O'Keefe, and I'm a cardiologist working at St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute. My name's Melissa McGuire, and I'm a nurse clinician and certified diabetic educator at the Haverty Cardiometabolic Center of Excellence in the St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute. Thanks for joining us today as we provide an overview of heart failure and its associated disease burden. We will also discuss how heart failure is classified, assessed, and can present in patients. I'm looking forward to this discussion and sharing our perspectives as clinicians. But before we talk about all of that, we first need to define precisely what we mean by heart failure. This is probably a review for most of you, but heart failure doesn't literally mean that the heart has failed. It's a term used to describe the state of structural changes accompanied by diminished cardiac function. Now, multiple guidelines have been developed to help clinicians diagnose and manage heart failure. Those developed by the American College of Cardiology Foundation and the American Heart Association use different classification guidelines than those developed by the New York Heart Association. Before we break down these guidelines, Dr. O'Keefe, could you take a moment and provide some context as to why we're reviewing these classifications? Gladly. The stages and functional classifications used in these guidelines are practical because they can be used to help correlate severity of heart failure with other measurements, and a patient's functional abilities are good indicators of their quality of life. The classifications have also been used to pair patients with the best treatment options for their stage or severity of heart failure. We will revisit the potential uses of these classifications shortly. Thanks, Dr. O'Keefe. So let's go through these guidelines in a little bit more detail. The ACCF and AHA define the stages of heart failure in terms of development and progression of disease, including risk factors and structural components, beginning with a stage A, where the individuals are at high risk of developing heart failure, and then ending in stage D, where patients have heart failure that's refractory to treatment. As the stages in the ACCF and AHA guidelines describe permanent structural changes, patients cannot really reverse or improve their ACCF or AHA classification. The NYHA, on the other hand, classifies heart failure by focusing on exercise capacity and the severity of symptoms in patients with structural heart disease. The categories start with class 1, indicating no physical limitations, and escalates to class 4, where individuals are unable to carry out any activities without noticing symptoms and may even have symptoms at rest. A patient's NYHA classification can potentially improve if interventions and treatment ameliorate their functional limitations or inhibited exercise capacity. Now let's review how the NYHA scale has been validated and how heart failure assessment scores can predict hospitalization rates. The Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, or KCCQ, captures information on physical function, symptoms, social limitation, and quality of life, with higher scores signifying better health status. As a patient progresses from NYHA Class 1 to more severe classes of heart failure, their corresponding score on the KCCQ declines. This is noteworthy because KCCQ scores are also correlated with heart failure-linked hospitalization rates. So Dr. O'Keefe, it sounds like you're saying that decreasing KCCQ scores, or decreased levels of function and health, are associated with a significantly increased risk of being hospitalized within the year. Exactly right, Melissa. Now that we've talked about how quality of life is quantified and affected by heart failure, what does this mean in practical terms for a patient? 
Well, that's a great question, Dr. O'Keefe. Unfortunately, heart failure tends to be a vicious circle for patients that we see, and they struggle to stay motivated. I mean, even the simplest of tasks that we sometimes take for granted, such as picking up a child or carrying a laundry basket or vacuuming, can cause shortness of breath. And over time, it's this inability to complete very simple activities of daily living that can leave our patients feeling frustrated and disheartened. Exactly. We can see what an impact functional ability has on quality of life. Now that we've briefly discussed the broad definition of heart failure, how does it work mechanistically? We'll begin by considering ejection fraction, a feature used to describe the two most common variants of heart failure. Ejection fraction is a measurement of the amount of blood being pumped out of the heart divided by the amount of blood entering the heart. One form of heart failure occurs when this function is preserved, and it is appropriately named heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which is commonly called HEFPEF. In this case, the ejection fraction remains within normal limits of 50 to 70 percent, despite functional abnormalities. This is also called diastolic heart failure and can be characterized by a heterogeneous pathophysiology, such as the walls surrounding the heart becoming thickened and stiff, resulting in a decreased ability to take blood in. Also, in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, there is typically a lower amount of blood in the chamber, and while the ejection fraction itself may fall within acceptable limits, there is significantly lower stroke volume in these patients. That's the real problem, and what leads to the patient's reduced functional abilities and quality of life. Now let's discuss the other type of heart failure. Patients are classified as having heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, which you may have heard cardiologists refer to as HEFREF. This is when the value of the EF is at or below 40%, the walls surrounding the heart are thin and dilated, and the heart struggles to pump blood out. This is also referred to as systolic heart failure and can occur after myocardial injury. I'd also like to add that there's an approximately equal prevalence of both types of heart failure. So let's assess some of the similarities and differences between heart failure with preserved and reduced ejection fraction. First, though it's worth noting that despite their differences, the outcomes for patients in both categories are similar. Patients with heart failure with a preserved or reduced ejection fraction exhibit similar rates of any hospital readmission. This trend holds true regardless of the reason for hospitalization, such as for cardiovascular events, heart failure-related events, or all-cause readmissions within five years of an initial hospitalization event. In addition to these rates being similar, they're also devastatingly high. Heart failure is the most common reason for hospitalization in patients 65 or older, and the most of these patients will be readmitted over a five-year period, independent of the type of heart failure that they have. So Dr. O'Keefe, can you discuss other similarities as well as differences between heart failure with reduced and preserved ejection fraction? Absolutely. Although both types of heart failure share many features, their pathophysiology is complex and they exhibit unique characteristics. Let's start by reviewing what they have in common, aside from rehospitalization rates. The two types of heart failure share risk factors such as diabetes, hypertension, CKD, obesity, COPD, aging, and CAD, demonstrate evidence of oxidative stress, and exhibit inflammation within the heart. Okay, then now that we know what these types of heart failure have in common, what makes heart failure with preserved ejection fraction unique? That's a good question, Melissa. Patients with preserved ejection fraction exhibit inflammation that extends systemically, 
beyond just the heart. Cardiomyocyte stiffness associated with those thick walls that we discussed earlier, passive stiffness, and fibrosis. On the other hand, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction is characterized by a separate set of unique features. Cardiac injury is a hallmark. Cardiomyocytes can atrophy and die, leading to the thin walls of the heart that we discussed earlier. And finally, there is decreased myocardial contractility. Thanks, Dr. O'Keefe. Now, let's take a moment to discuss how heart failure can manifest and what we've observed in our patients and some of the assessments we've performed. There are many signs and symptoms that can trigger us to think of heart failure, and they can look different from patient to patient. Common, readily observable symptoms include breathlessness, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, or waking up suddenly in the middle of the night with shortness of breath, orthopnea, or the worsening of this shortness of breath while laying flat, reduced tolerance to exercise, and a long recovery time after exercise, fatigue, and swollen ankles. Clinically assessed characteristics that can indicate heart failure include jugular venous distension, hepatojugular reflux, a third heart sound, a laterally displaced apical beat, and a cardiac murmur. But Dr. O'Keefe, what are some of the differential hints that suggest a diagnosis of heart failure to you? Sometimes patients will describe needing to put pillows under their head at night to help them breathe. I also pay special attention to any symptoms of congestion or volume overload, such as a distended jugular vein or lower extremity edema. I have found that if a patient has trouble walking up a flight of stairs or with ambulation in general, that raises my level of suspicion too, especially if I find out that their activity level has been decreasing over time. One other point, regarding RALS, in many patients, these may not be audible even in the presence of considerable lung congestion due to hypertrophy of the lymphatics over time. If heart failure is present, an echocardiogram can confirm if the ejection fraction is preserved or reduced. Elevated NT pro-BNP levels can also be an indication of heart failure. Before closing, let's review some of the important take-home messages we've discussed. Heart failure can be classified using the ACCF, AHA, or NYHA guidelines. There are two major types of heart failure, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, both of which contribute roughly equally to significant hospital readmission rates. While each present with some unique features, both forms of heart failure share many pathophysiological features. Thanks for the opportunity to share this timely information with you. We hope you have learned something new about heart failure and the truly devastating impact it can have on patients. Thank you for joining us.